Even if you don't get very excited about touring cathedrals to admire the architecture, there is a church being built in Spain that you just have to see for yourself. Now, in the last few years, the staggering, almost emotional experience as you walk in from the outside and the space and the light kind of explodes above your head. Coming up, art historian Geis van Hensbergen shares his enthusiasm for the genius of Antoni Gaudí. His vision for the world's most famously unfinished landmark is nearing completion at Barcelona's Sagrada Familia. Plus, frequent traveler Seth Kugel helps you get more of what you really want out of your travels. I kind of noticed a lot of disconnects between what people really want to get out of travel and what they actually do when they travel. It's a guide for the globally curious and the story of Gaudí's masterpiece on today's Travel with Rick Steves. Stay with us. Have you ever found yourself over-planning a trip you've been anticipating for a long time? Did your tight itinerary get in the way of actually enjoying yourself? Coming up on today's Travel with Rick Steves, travel writer Seth Kugel recommends a few time-tested tips for having the trip of a lifetime. Seth helps us rediscover what we want to get out of seeing the world a little later in the hour. I didn't expect that I'd live long enough to ever see it finished. So far, the always under-construction Sagrada Familia Church in Barcelona has already survived two world wars, a civil war, penny-pinching accountants, and the hungry years of Franco's rule. Today, it's become an icon of the city, construction cranes and all. Plans are to complete architect Antoni Gaudí's vision for the church by 2026 to mark the centennial of his death. As it nears completion, visitors often describe it as one of the most beautiful buildings they've ever entered. Art historian Geis van Hensbergen has written the definitive biography of Gaudí. He joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to explore the architectural marvel that he writes about in his book, The Sagrada Familia. Geis, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you for inviting me on your show, Rick. This is an audacious construction project. Can you give us a context of of how the great church in Barcelona by Gaudí uh, evolved to be this iconic symbol of the city today? Well, in 1882, it was a a private devotion for the Holy Family. It was a time in Europe and I think also in America where lots of religious groups were trying to deal with the problems of the Industrial Revolution and kind of social change. And one of the Catholic ideas was to build around the notion of the family, the patriarchal figure of Joseph then being the model of perhaps a, a manager or perhaps the head of the family that the perfect family had already arrived, of course, 2,000 years ago. And around that to make a devotion, which rapidly took off, and they found enough money, uh, went to the Vatican, asked permission and a blessing, and the Pope gave his blessing. And in 1882, the first stone was laid. But it wasn't Gaudi. It was a man called Villar y Lozano who decided to make kind of standard uh, neo-Gothic church Bigger than normal, because the devotion was very popular. And it was only after a year when he started having a battle with the board of the devotion that they finally released him and said, look, we're not going to get anywhere with this. And they start looking for somebody else. And apparently the head of the devotion, Mr. Boccabellio, a very strange, eccentric book dealer, had a dream that night that a ginger-haired, blue-eyed man would come to the rescue. And he walks into an architectural studio and right at the back he sees a ginger-haired, blue-eyed, 31-year-old. I think he must have actually known him. But Ah. anyway, he goes and sure enough, 
Gaudi, from being an assistant in a studio, accepts the largest commission in Spain at the time. It was a kind of a total shock, I think. They knew that he was very talented. He'd done very well at architectural school. He'd helped out with other architects sorting out problems. And his genius was not yet fully realized, but he was somebody who was passionate about fulfilling the job. And there was a problem because he had the footprint of the previous build to deal with. And so it was kind of him working through tactically as well as stylistically, I think, how he could make this building really his own. So this was quite radical. It was a huge change from this status quo, which was pretty tired, really. Just this whole neo-Gothic, neo-Romanesque stuff is just rehashing stuff that Europe's done over past centuries. Gaudi took this in a direction nobody had gone before. But, I mean, it was again, it was a slow-burning fuse. And I think he was very tactical about this. He finished off the crypt. He didn't want to scare away his mm -hmm. um, patrons. And so he carried on in the style that they thought of. And then it was really once the crypt was finished, once the ceiling was put over and it could be used as the parish church, that I think he'd kind of bought himself space and time to actually start working on the great Sagrada Familia Basilica that we see today an astonishing feat of both engineering, the idea of people waiting for so long to see something finished. That's a medieval kind of thing, isn't it? I mean, the Notre Dame in Paris, it took nearly 200 years, and people invested all their energy into it, knowing they would not live to see it completed. In the 20th century, we're not that patient. And for this to be embarked upon, knowing it would take longer than Gaudi's lifetime, and it's 100 years later, it's still being worked on, in a way, it's exciting to have a, a church that's a, a many-generation construction project. Absolutely. And, and um, I mean, Gaudi said to somebody, my client, he's not in a hurry. God waited 400 years for the Cathedral of Seville. In fact, the cathedral in Barcelona, in the old city, the original Gothic cathedral, starting in the 1200s, with Romanesque footings over a Roman temple and a Visigothic church, and it still wasn't finished in 1900 when Gaudi mm. was working and starting the Sagrada Familia. That's 700 years. Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is Geis van Hensbergen. He's an expert on the art, food, and history of Spain. He tells the story of the unusual church that's being completed in Barcelona with Gaudi's stunning modernista design. It's in his book, The Sagrada Familia. Now, this church, the Gaudi Church in Barcelona, the Sagrada Familia, which means the Sacred Family Church, there seems to be a real push to get it done by 2026, which is, as I mentioned, the 100th anniversary of the death of the architect Gaudi. And they're getting a lot of money because it's expensive to tour it, and every day it's sold out. You can complain about the admission price, but it's fun because you're part of this, funding this amazing project. What's your take on fast-tracking the finish, and do you think they'll make it by 2026? And what has enabled them to move it along so quickly? The first thing is, is obviously the money and the support. It's the most visited site in Spain, even more than the Prado, even more than the Alhambra in Granada. And so we've got up to 4.5 million people paying, what, 20, 25 euros entrance fee, of which most of that goes to continue the mm. speeding up of the process. I think the other major difference, apart from the money, is that the techniques that are being now used, uh, laser cutters, computer programming, the CAD designs which were used on computers to build Concord, which Frank Geary used in Bilbao on the Guggenheim. That is all now being employed to use and finish and 
pulling in great engineering firms like Arabs as well, international firms mm. who are advising and Jody Fowley, who is now the, I think, the fifth architect after Gaudi to work on the building, is someone who's very, very accustomed to working with the new innovations. It would be fascinating if Gaudi was still alive, because I suspect he would also be totally inspired by the idea of being able to speed up and see things in 3D even before you you know, using models rather than 2D drawings. Well, guys, that is one interesting issue. There's no copies of Gaudi's original plans, I understand. We have a good sense of where he wanted to go with it. Do you think it is true to Gaudi's original vision, uh, and do you think Gaudi would be happy with it? I mean, in a general sense, I think it is true to his vision. Of course, second day of the Spanish Civil War, July the 20th, 1936, Anarchists break into the Sagrada Familia, they smash up all the models, they burn all the papers, they trash the studio. There is very little left, apart from that after the Spanish Civil War ends, architects and archaeologists go in there and start slowly re-piecing things. It's Hmm. kind of almost like the archaeology of the future, thinking of what we can do that is true to Gaudi. But we do have, and this is something which not many Gaudi scholars have used before, but is to go back to original books that were there in the Sagrada Familia archives that survived the fires. Mm -hmm. And we see sketches and drawings and the general idea of what Gaudi wanted. And I think in that sense, in a very broad, sweeping way, it is true to his philosophy and also his engineering kind of pattern and, Mm -hmm. and the logic behind it. I mean, we always talk of Gaudi the visionary, Gaudi the architect, but I think Gaudi the engineer is actually where the real genius lies. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with art historian and biographer Geis van Hensbergen. And Geis tells the remarkable stories that have gone into nearly 140 years of construction on Barcelona's architectural masterpiece. His book about the most exciting church built in our lifetime is The Sagrada Familia. Geis also leads specialty food and art tours in Spain. We have links to his website with the notes for this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Geis, I just mentioned that it's the most exciting church built in our lifetime. Do you buy that? I absolutely do. I started working on the Gaudi biography ooh, 20 years ago. It took me 10 years of research because of papers being burned and damaged or whatever to reconstruct his life. Mm-hmm. And so I would be there in the Sagrada Familia gosh, once a week sometimes, three days in a week another time, and just watched it. But now, in the last few years, the staggering, almost emotional experience as you walk in from the outside and the space and the light kind of explodes above your head. It blows you away, walking from outside where all the tourists are gawking, stepping inside, and the lines just take your eyes right up to the ceiling. For our listeners who may not have an image of the Sagrada Familia, we all know what a Gothic church looks like. Can you just describe exterior and interior, paint a picture with words, what this church, this Gaudi vision towering over Barcelona looks like? Well, we've got to remember that it's still only half the height of how it's going to be in 2026. So that's eight years away, and we've still got to double the height with towers. So, I mean, that's already kind of mind-boggling. But then when you start looking at it and you're standing outside the church and you go to the facade, the nativity facade, which is the one that Gaudi worked on, we've got 
this huge facade which almost leans over you. And if you stand underneath it, you feel this kind of sense that it might even fall down and crush you and that you're a tiny little insect in the world looking up at this extraordinary multicolored facade with sculptures all over it and there's chickens and there's geese running around. And when then you realize actually why they look so real is because Gaudi actually went out, chloroformed the geese and set them in plaster. And then once he got the mold, broke open the mold, let the bird fly free again. And so you get this incredible mixture between human figures and you even get a fishing boat halfway up on the lift. You could spend days actually looking there and seeing new details, as I've done. I've spent years doing it. There's an organic quality to it, even if you look at the spires. As you mentioned, the, the ultimate central spire will go twice as tall as the existing ones, but even the existing ones, they're huge and they glitter with tiles and organic designs. Geis van Hensbergen's our guide to the most amazing church being built in Europe, the Sagrada Familia in Barcelona. He also leads food and art tours of Spain, and he brings the Europeans to America to visit this country's art treasures. We'll open the phones in a minute at 877-333-7425 for you to share your own impressions from visiting Gaudí's masterpiece of modernista architecture. It's Travel with Rick Steves. Travel writer Seth Kugel wants to revolutionize how you travel. He tells us how in just a bit on Travel with Rick Steves. Right now, Gaudi historian Geis van Hensbergen is helping us explore the Sagrada Familia. When it was started in 1883, the sensuous eccentricity of Gaudi's modernista design was ahead of its time for a church. And now, the people of Barcelona have proudly adopted it as a symbol of their city and their region's Catalan identity. Geis describes the story of this remarkable building in his book, The Sagrada Familia. Geis, you were describing the impression the church makes on you. It's organic, plus it mixes in this wonderful modernisme technique of putting in colored tiles with the stonework. Can you describe modernisme, first of all, because that's this Art Nouveau kind of style that is unique to Catalan. Modernisme, as you said, was the equivalent of Art Nouveau or Jugendstil. It was the style of the beginning of the 20th century, bringing nature into the city. And we're talking about industrialized cities like Barcelona. You've got stained glass with flowers and plants. You've got a building which is growing branches up the side of it. You've got all these lovely details as if you're in this kind of city paradise mm. and dreaming almost of a kind of nostalgic way of thinking about what the countryside is ah, like. I love that. And if you go up to the hilltop overlooking the church, the uh, Park Güell, you can see you were talking about how we have the playfulness of nature worked into the architecture. Park Güell is just all about that, isn't it? Absolutely. That was where he lived for about 25 years. It was a project that failed in that it was going to be a building 60 houses, and in the end it was only his and his patron, Mr. Gwell, and a lawyer who had another house up on the hill. But the big spaces, the dance floor and the marketplace with its wonderful serpentine bench, all with these beautiful little mosaic broken tiles scattered around almost like Picasso's cubism, had exploded along this 100-metre-long bench that just kind of 
works like a snake around the edge of this big platform. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Geis van Hensbergen. His book is The Sagrada Familia, talking about the iconic church by Antoni Gaudí that is becoming the visual symbol of the city of Barcelona. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Allison's calling from Galveston in Texas. Allison, thanks for your call. Thanks for having me. Um, a few years ago, I had gone to the Museum of Fine Arts in Houston and saw a documentary about the construction of the church, and, I mean, it was just amazing. And so last year, I went for my first time, and I was just in awe of the whole time I was there. Every corner you turned, it was, it was something new to see. It's definitely worth the money if you're interested in going, and it was really amazing. Hey, Allison, did you use the audio guide when you went in? Yes, I definitely would suggest using the audio guide, and I also did the tour of the towers. Oh, yeah. That was awesome, because you get up close sight of some of those things that you can only otherwise only see from the ground. Did you book it online, or did you pay for it when you got there? I booked it online way ahead of time. So and, You know, it's busy all year long. I feel so strongly about this. Number one, approach the Sagrada Familia like this is one site you're going to spend some time in. Take advantage, go up the elevators, use the audio guide, watch the videos, read a book, spend some time there, enjoy it inside and out, and while technically you can buy a ticket at the gate, you're very likely to come to the gate like I did last year, and the sign says, we're closed for the day because tickets are sold out. Come back tomorrow. You should approach the Sagrada Familia as if the only way to go in there is with an online ticket reserved well in advance and then you'll waltz right in while thousands of people are being frustrated. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Does that make sense, uh, guys, for tr just a yeah, strategy? Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing that I feel very strongly about is don't rush to get inside. Yeah. Walk around the exterior, think about it a little bit, feel about what your emotions are to it, and mm. then only then go inside mm. because it's that almost shock of coming from the outside mm. into this extraordinary kind of well Gaudi wanted it to be his heaven on earth mm. and it's as close as you get to heaven I think you know I went just last year after I've been visiting ever since I was a kid following the evolution of this amazing structure and I was very surprised there's a new way to see it it's from across the reflecting pool from more of a distance and it's just a delightful place that should be I think one of your first stops it's from a distance a little bit and you have got the reflecting pool between you and the church it's really quite a striking new way to approach the church. Absolutely, Rick. And I, I think also the other thing which, I mean, people often don't have time, but you said spend a day or spend half a day there. Mm -hmm. I would then, even before going in, checking, of course, what your entrance time is, allow yourself some time to go downstairs into the crypt. You don't need a ticket for it. It's where Gaudi is buried. It's where Boccabellia, the man who financed it, he's buried. It's the original build before Gaudi mm -hmm. really explodes. And it gives you an idea of the kind of history and the distance he traveled in his life stylistically. Good advice. And when you are looking at the exterior, I, I was remarking about how great it is from across that pond. I understand that's not even the main entryway. There's a eminent domain concern or something about all of the condominiums that have been built that is in the approach Gaudi hopes to have. And I understand the city is still trying to find a way to buy out these people so they can clear out that area and have the proper front approach to the church. What's the latest on that, guys? Well, I think that's going to be very polemical when they... The actual ground is owned by the Sagrada Familia. 
They built these flats back in the 1960s. People bought them on the understanding that the flats were cheaper than normal, that when it was going to be finished, the properties would be taken back and knocked down and the space would be created for a bridge which would go over the street and you would enter over this kind of huge kind of entrance like going to the Paris Opera. The only problem was, of course, is those people thought that the end date was never going to happen. Like I did, too, in the 1980s. I never thought I'd see the end of this, but it's really fast-tracked. Absolutely. So suddenly they're getting nervous. Equally, of course, it depends on who's in government at the time, because the present mayor of Barcelona is not necessarily hugely sympathetic to the Catholic mission of the Sagrada Familia. Well, we'll have to stay tuned for that, but it's really important from the big picture to have the proper approach to this church that so much energy and time has been invested in. Hey, guys, when Ellison was approaching the church, as travelers do today, is the facade they see, is that the nativity facade? No, actually the entrance gate is on the other side, but they keep, that's another thing to make sure you, when you get there, arrive a good 15, 20 minutes before, because they keep changing the entrance okay. gate, which side to go into first, And that depends also on what's happening, of course, on the bill. So be sure you don't miss the other side. But my understanding was Gaudi finished one of the facades very early as kind of a marketing stunt so people could envision the final project and uh, help fund it. Yeah, I don't think it was so much a marketing stunt. I think what he wanted to do was kind of leave a stamp, uh, kind of the iconic front, Ah. uh, so that you could never think that you were going to do anything else. Uh, Ah. And that when we got round to it in generations to come, that we would see one side finished. Gaudi didn't actually see that side even finished in his lifetime. When he was run over by a tram in 1926, he only saw one of the four towers on that side finished. And I understand Gaudi did not have a very um, fancy presence in public. He was often mistaken even as a beggar. Absolutely. And, And often he was begging. He was, was uh, he crossed the road and asked you for some money for the Sagrada Familia. My goodness. But he was, he was someone who, who had kind of, at the end of his life, had really given up on anything to do. I think he saw himself almost like a kind of St. Francis figure. And today and there's a movement to make him a saint. Absolutely, and it's getting very close. Many a rumor that is that the sainthood, the first patron saint of the arts in history, will be made in 2026 a hundred years after Gaudi died, Mm. serving the Catholic Church to create this work of genius, the Sagrada Familia. Geis van Hensbergen is a biographer of the architect Antoni Gaudi. He's a tour guide who specializes in Spain and the author of The Sagrada Familia. We have links to his website with the notes for this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Molly's on the phone now from Phoenix in Arizona. Hey, Molly, have you visited Sagrada Familia? Uh, My husband and I visited Barcelona this past May, and one of the main things that we wanted to do was go to the Sagrada Familia. We had my parents with us. Two days later, we went back and spent some more time, and I started to notice the detail, how every portion of Jesus' life was taken into account throughout the building the thing that grabbed my attention on the nativity facade was the statue uh, with the Roman soldier killing a baby. I know that's terrible to say, but it reminded me of the part of the story we never talk about at Christmas, the slaughter of the innocent. Yeah, that's. I think Gaudi was really driven by the his faith, and, and there's a lot of theology written into his vision. Guys, talk a little bit about um, the theology of the architecture. 
I mean, he wanted it to be a Bible in stone. And that particular detail that struck Molly is because it was also so realistic. He wanted to find a man who could look like a Roman soldier, so he got his workers to go out, scour the bars around Barcelona, and they found this huge guy who had six toes, six fingers, six, 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 the kind of sign of the devil, and he persuaded him to come along and model. And then more kind of... Today it wouldn't be so shocking, but perhaps back in the late 19th century, he actually managed to get stillborn babies and cast them so those children are actually the models of little children who died in Barcelona at the time that Gaudi was sculpting. Hmm. Gaudi felt very strongly that God's handiwork, i.e. creation, should not be improved upon and couldn't be improved upon. And so if you were absolutely realistic, you were echoing, in a sense, God's handiwork. And you really feel that when you walk through the church. Everything is so lovingly thought through, even the furniture and the organ and the ornaments to the the architectural bones of the place. And then the way the colors of the sun shining through the stained glass bring color to the floor and directs your attention. And, And the columns are organic, like giant palm trees. And then the ribs in the ceiling spread out like branches. It seems like he was really inspired by creation. Geis, as an architect, did he find inspiration in nature that actually works from an architectural, structural point of view? Absolutely. I mean, he, he said the, one of the greatest works of architecture in the world is a tree. Trees know where to put out branches. Hmm. They know how to survive storms. They know how to grow in the right place and to create this beautiful canopy. And that's what he wanted, I think, to give an impression in a sense of walking into a man-made natural setting, Mm -hmm. half cave, half temple, extravagant, dramatic space, which just soars over you to a massive height, 60 meters. Molly, thanks for your call. Thank you. Art historian Geis van Hensbergen tells the remarkable stories that have gone into nearly 140 years of construction on Barcelona's modernista masterpiece in his book, The Sagrada Familia. Brad joins us on the phone just outside Williamsburg in Virginia. Brad, have you had a chance to visit the Sagrada Familia Church? It's been a while since I've been to Barcelona, and I was stationed in Europe twice, Germany mostly. I've seen a lot of churches, but the Sagrada Familia had such an impact on me. I spent about four hours just sitting on a bench by the wall and just watching how the light moved Mm. across the floor, and I would highlight different features that Gaudi had uh, constructed. And just now I heard you talking about how the columns were like a giant tree, And I think of a large tree as a place of uh, shelter. And I think he meant for the cathedral to be a place of spiritual shelter. And you get this feeling that my life is just one part of the continuance of this long progression of the human story. And Gaudi, to his credit, understood that his time there was limited, that he would not see it completed. And I was so impressed that he left one wall on the outside blank for those who would come after so that it would... So the story would continue and not end with his vision, but his vision would just be something that others after him would build upon. Boy, that's very interesting to think of his theology and his personal philosophy and his ideas about how this would grow with through the ages. I mean, we, we've got to remember that it, it, when it was first starting to be built, it was actually an expiatory temple, which meant that 
The idea is that there was so much sin in the world that we needed a temple where if we were involved in any way giving money or working on it, it would pay for the sins of ourselves and our family because we're all sinners. And the idea that by praying in this space, it would kind of release us from sin and hopefully if we prayed enough, we would find our place in heaven. Do you think if Gaudi came in there today, the church is consecrated, there's masses going on, I would love to get into his head when he's sitting there looking at how people have taken his vision and then, in good faith, moved forward with it. I think he would be actually quite shocked in a positive way at how popular he had Mm. become. I mean... I think what what would also surprise him is is that you stand outside the Sagrada Familia, you're in the queue, you're surrounded by Russians, Chinese, mm. Japanese, Brazilians, people from all over the world, all speaking their different languages, almost like the Tower of Babel. Mm. They're coming there, and he seems, through a very approachable and dramatic style, to talk and speak to so many different types of people. Hey, Brad, thanks for your call. You're very welcome. Bye-bye. And Joshua's calling in from Chicago. Joshua, thanks. Hello. The first time that I went to Sagrada Familia, I actually arrived on Christmas morning, and I got to experience the sunrise Mm. over the nativity facade. It was a pretty spectacular Mm. kind of experience. As an architect, it was... uh, a place that I've always wanted to experience, and that made it even more dramatic and spectacular for me. As an architect, that's setting the bar pretty high to envision a building that would be groundbreaking, that nobody had ever done, that would resonate with people. And a hundred years later, you'd have people coming from all across the planet to see it, to be inspired by it, for people that didn't go there to worship to find themselves worshiping when they step inside. When I step into a church, I want to be touched. I I want to feel a spiritual impact. I want to be inspired. I want to take a moment and be thoughtful. And a few churches do that. And, of course, uh, we're having just a Gaudi love fest here because uh, the Sagrada (laughs) Familia does it as good as any place uh, I can imagine. Oh, absolutely. Quite an experience. (laughs) Thanks for sharing, Joshua, and I hope that you can go back when the the church is actually completely finished also. Thank you. (laughs) It is remarkable, guys, how, how one church can have such an impact, and it's not even finished yet. That, you know, signals the genius of Gaudi. And I think what's also interesting, you say, when you go into a church, you look for spirituality, for that moment of silence, for that moment of recollection, or or thinking about your nearest and dearest, or thinking about the Lord. What I find interesting is, is that Sagrada Familia also works for atheists and for agnostics. They still feel this extraordinary spirituality. I think that is something which is very unusual. And I just love that because there's so much divisiveness and I'm a Christian and you're not. I'm a Muslim and you're a Jew. And and you go there and it's just, we're all together. You can see us as children of God or you can see us as just creatures in the jungle. But you've got this beautiful bit of stone and glass put together by an artistic genius a hundred years ago. (laughs) And, And it's one of the great joys of being able to get out and explore this world. Geis van Hensbergen, thank you so much for sharing your passion and expertise on uh, the greatest church built in our lifetime. And thank you for inviting me on your program. (laughs) 
In addition to Sagrada Familia, Geis van Hensbergen has written a biography of Gaudí. He's written about Picasso's Guernica and The Kitchens of Castile. His next project will be about great American art collectors and about the birth of arts philanthropy. You can find a link to his website with this week's show at ricksteves.com slash radio. Up next, frequent traveler Seth Kugel tells us about his new guide for the globally curious. It's a book that may have you rethink how you plan your next trip. We're at 877-333-RICK on Travel with Rick Steves. I live a third of my life out of a suitcase, so I think it's worth taking a step back now and then to ponder the deeper questions behind how we travel. What can we experience? And what do we miss out on when we try to fit too much into our itineraries? Travel writer Seth Kugel explores these questions in his new book, Rediscovering Travel, a guide for the globally curious. Kugel is a frequent contributor to the New York Times travel section, and he wrote the Frugal Traveler column for many years. With his own frequent travels, Seth has amassed a collection of practical tips and perspectives for the seasoned traveler, as well as for those of us who are just getting our passport for the first time. Seth, welcome back to Travel with Rick Steves. Thanks. Great to be here. In in a nutshell, how do you describe rediscovering travel? Well, in uh, five years of traveling around the world for the Frugal Traveler column, I kind of noticed a lot of disconnects between what people really want to get out of travel and what they actually do when they travel. So for me, the book is a way to make people think about all kinds of elements of travel and whether they're traveling the way they really want to be. That's pretty fundamental. I mean, a lot of people get hung up on plane connections and where they're going to sleep, but they forget maybe why they're going and how they're going to make those dreams come true. I I remember back in the old days, Arthur Fromer's uh, Europe on $5 a day It's a great book. It inspired me. But 80% of it seemed like it was just how to eat and sleep. And I thought, I'm going there to do more than that. That's the springboard. I need to have those experiences and those adventures. You know, that's a book that every modern traveler should read. What I got out of it was the same as you, but I drew a different conclusion. There is so little information about what to do in the place you're visiting. Mm -hmm. It makes you think, how did people travel back then? Well, they set out and discovered things. Oh, I see. So that's a, a more positive spin on it. Now we want every little moment laid out so we have no risk. And Fromer's approach, the basic approach in the old days was just, hey, go over there and, and follow the serendipity. Right. Most of his book is really practical things that today we could just get, you know, online very, very easily, like train schedules. But, uh, you know, I challenge people in the book to imagine you have his guide and you pull into Copenhagen. There's about one page on Copenhagen Mm -hmm. in his book. And I think that most modern travelers arriving in a city with one page about the city and no technology would panic and turn right around and go (laughs) home. We are more reliant on this. So let's talk about how too much planning can be a problem. Of course, planning is smart, but there is a cost to over-planning. You're muscling out all the spontaneity. People seem to be really risk-averse, and people really are nervous about using their time like it's a bank account. They want to spend every minute smartly. Uh, What's your philosophy on how much planning is good? My philosophy is to plan in some detail But the minute anything comes up that looks more interesting than what I've planned, Mm -hmm. I abandon the list and I just go for it. I mean, maybe I'm going to the, 
Prado Museum or something like that, and I see a good churro salesman, and I'm like, forget that. Yeah. I'm having some churros. I that would it. that would be the sort of, of thing. And basically, to me, when people are too reliant on their plans, they often simply don't see what's going on around them and miss a lot of great discoveries. I came to the same conclusion just a couple years ago. I was on the road, and it occurred to me the most memorable and beautiful and rich experiences I was having were not planned. And it was a philosophy. It was an attitude. If an opportunity presents itself, say yes. Your first inclination should be yes, not, well, that'll mess up my my pre-plans. I mean, take that to the extreme. I remember hitchhiking in Ireland, and I would literally be out in the middle of nowhere, and I would hitchhike whichever direction the traffic was coming, just to hop in a, in a cab with the truck driver and have a conversation. Well, that sounds absolutely perfect to me. So how tightly do you plan an itinerary? Let's say you're going to go to Brazil for 10 days. I would imagine you get your, your hotels figured out, so you've got that nailed down, and then you're free within your overnights, or how do you do that? Yeah, in general, I would know where I was going to stay. But, you know, Brazil is a country, the country I know the best. So it's the place where I feel the most comfortable being spontaneous. Mm. So I don't know that I would make the hotel reservations for the final few nights because maybe I don't know where I want to be the final few nights. One of the great things about not making reservations all the way through your trip is that you can decide that you want to stay where you are Mm -hmm. or you can leave a place early if you don't like it. And now... You know, you just connect to the Internet. You can get a hotel reservation in two seconds anywhere in the world. You know, that's a very good point is how much legacy thinking do we have? I think I've got a lot of legacy thinking where I just go because there was a time when it was smart to book hotels well in advance. But now, of course, you can go online and see what's available. In the old days, you had to go to the tourist office and they (laughs) hotels would call in and say, I had a cancellation. And the budget traveler without a hotel reservation would take advantage of that. But, But that's a whole different age now. It is true that one time I could not get a room and I ended up sleeping in my car. I was in Puerto Rico and the western coast of Puerto Rico and it just turned out there was a major surf competition Mm -hmm. and every single hotel was booked. But that was one time. And the best thing, of course, about when things go wrong in travel is it makes for a good story. Hey, the night I spent, you know. We're talking about it now. I slept in my car in a Puerto Rican supermarket. But you need to have that attitude that, hey, this is going to be a good memory. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah, it doesn't always seem so great at the time. That's kind of an attitudinal trick, I think. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with travel writer Seth Kugel. He's here to share his practical perspectives on the benefits of exploring the world, which he details with stories from his own adventures in his new book, Rediscovering Travel, a guide for the globally curious. You can find his website at sethkugel.com, S-E-T-H-K-U-G-E-L. Seth, I've always thought that the mark of a good trip is how many people you meet. What are some of your tricks for making sure that your travel is filled with people memories as well as seeing famous galleries and museums and so on? When I think back on almost any trip, the first memory that comes back to me is somebody's face. It's a lost trip if you don't Hmm. meet people. So the best advice I've ever heard is continuously smile and ask people questions, even if it's a question you already know just to start a conversation because not everyone you meet has time for you. Not everyone you meet is in a good mood, Mm -hmm. but many, many people will have time for you and are in a good mood. So you have to be ready to sort of face a little bit of social rejection in order to meet some really great people. It takes, you know, meeting some of the jerks that are there as well. Yeah, you have to take the good with the bad and smile is such an important tool. Another good tool is booze. 
alcohol. <laughs> now, I don't, I don't drink that much, but when I'm on the road, palinka in Hungary, vodka in a Russian train, sake in a tarped street stand in Tokyo in the middle of the winter, a Cuba Libre in Havana, whiskey in the Orkney Isles, these are lubricants that have helped me really connect with people. It seems like when people drink generally, if it's a healthy scene, they're drinking to be social. And why not just dive in? Yeah, well, and also I like to go to places where I know people will be relaxed. You know, I'm not going to go to, you know, lunch hour in the busy business mm. district of Hong Kong and think I'm going to make a lifelong friend. Mm-hmm. I'd rather go to Central Park on a Sunday. Mm. So that's another little trick. And actually being in a bar is the exact definition of that. Uh, most people go to bars when they have time, when they want to talk to people, when they're feeling social. I love that idea that a pub is a public house. I guess that's the a pub is short for public house. People go there. It's the extended living room. I was in Iran filming, I remember, and on the streets of the big city, it was hard to have anybody who had much time, but I went down to the riverbank in Isfahan, and it was just like a long, grassy park along the river with people renting paddle boats and people with their Bunsen burners cooking up dinner on the blanket with their kids, and people were in a much more relaxed and conversational mood. It was like two different groups of people. And uh, maybe there's something to that. Uh, I like what you said. You don't go to the business district in in Hong Kong and and talk with somebody who's got 45 minutes to eat. You go to a pub in Scotland and people are there to spend the evening. The other thing I would uh, recommend is doing just a little brief investigation of what the social norms are in, in places you go to. I always give the example of the New York City subway versus a French bakery. So in a French bakery, you sort of have to go in and say, bonjour, monsieur, blah, 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 blah. You go through a whole process as you speak to the people there, and they're very formal. Uh, whereas in the New York City subway, you don't even really have to say hi. You just kind of turn to the person next to you and you say, can you believe how bad it smells in here? We're talking with Seth Kugel. His book is Rediscovering Travel, a guide for the globally curious. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Kristen's calling in from Arroyo Grande in California. Hi, how are you today? Doing good. Thanks for taking my call. I, I love your idea of spontaneity when you travel. My husband and I are teachers and we have school-age children, so the only time we're able to travel is during the busy season. And I'm wondering what you recommend to leave to the travel gods and what you recommend booking during the high season. We hate missing things because we didn't plan ahead. And I'm just wondering, do you have any advice? Did you say leave to the travel gods? Yes. That's funny. I thought I was ready to hear <laughs> travel great. guides, but the travel gods, that's a good question. Um, Seth, these days, how much do you leave to the travel gods and how much do you just go online and book things? Well, I guess I would say that whatever you're currently doing, leave a little bit more to the travel gods. What I, what I found is that, yes, of course, you're going in the middle of the summer. You probably do want to book a place to stay. You're traveling with kids. Uh, but you, especially when you're traveling with kids, you actually are teaching them how to travel. So as much as you can, you know, make the plans and be ready to abandon them. There are always going to be things you have to reserve in advance, like going up to the crown of the Statue of Liberty. I would mention, however, Seth, that when we have this emerging economy situation in much of the world where everybody is going to the same places and they've read the same Seth Kugel article in the New York Times <laughs> and they all are going to... It's amazing. I was just in Iceland and there's 10 places that everybody has to go to and those are crowded places and the rest of the island is is left alone. I was just in Europe and it is getting 
absolutely impossible to get into the Alhambra or into the Sagrada Familia Church by Gaudí in Barcelona or get up the Eiffel Tower to see Anne Frank's house in Amsterdam unless you make a reservation in advance. So, Kristen, if you've got these marquee sites that you just got to see with your family, you want to see the Sistine Chapel or you want to go to the Uffizi Gallery or you just got to get your kids up the Eiffel Tower, assume that the only possible way to do that is to book in advance. Even if you knew that if you were lucky and it was a quiet time, you could go there and wait for an hour and get up. Assume that you're going to have the experience that I get a lot of times. You're going to come to that site, the ticket office is going to be closed, and it's going to say, all tickets have been sold for today. Come back tomorrow. Well, you book it in advance if possible. Now, that's not to negate what Seth is preaching, and I preach, of just blowing with the wind, but there's 10 or 20 sites in Europe where a lot of people just are hell-bent on seeing Mozart House in Salzburg. Well, if it's possible, make that reservation. A lot of times what I'll tell people is, okay, yeah, you want to reserve everything you really want to see, but just be sure, say, leave one afternoon in the week to just wandering around a neighborhood that you've never heard of. Uh, And that'll be great for the kids, too. And it's just one afternoon. I mean, if everything goes wrong in one afternoon, well, probably it's going to go wrong another afternoon, too. Okay. Thank you so much. Thanks for your call, Kristen. Travel writer Seth Kugels, our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. He challenges us to be better travelers and shares practical advice from his own adventures in his book, Rediscovering Travel, a guide for the globally curious. His website is sethkugel.com, spelled K-U-G-E-L. Seth, I think a lot of Americans are really more risk-averse now than a couple decades ago, probably because news is in our face all the time. News has become quite commercial. It's just frantic, and and the scarier they can make it, uh, the more they can charge for their ads. Well, the downside of that is we travelers think the world is less safe than it actually is. I love what you talked about. It's just dealing with people's fear with statistics. I'm going to Guatemala and uh, Ethiopia in a couple of months, and your statistics in your chapter just kind of calmed me because as experienced as I am, I'm still, it's tough to assess the risks. Talk about those numbers and and how that might help us assess risks better. Sure. I think that when we uh, think about what we fear when we're going to a place, a lot of times we fear uh, terrorism. These days especially, we also fear sort of getting mugged and attacked. But the numbers show, and these are numbers right from the U.S. State Department, uh, who unfortunately have to deal with when Americans uh, die overseas, that the most common way people die by far when they're traveling are motor vehicle accidents. Hmm. And that, that leads to some very practical tips, including if you're uncomfortable driving in the country you're in, you hire a driver. When you're taking a bus somewhere, be sure you're taking a reputable company because in many countries, not hmm. every bus is well-maintained. That sort of thing. And another very, very common way to pass away when you're traveling is drowning. Hmm. So we don't usually think of drowning in car accidents as the main risk to travelers. And those are things you can really, really reduce the risk of. So if you focus on that, of course, you do have to be a little bit careful and be watchful everywhere you go. But you'll be doing much more good hiring a driver than you are avoiding any place in the world that has had a terrorist attack in the last few years. So, Seth, a lot of people, when they're trying to assess risk, you know, terrorism gets all the news headlines. Address that statistically. Uh, We've talked about car accidents. According to your book, uh, 200 people a year are killed overseas in car accidents. How does that relate to terrorism? Well, the problem with terrorism is every time an American dies in a terrorist attack, it's on the front pages. 
in reality, in the time period I looked at, which was State Department statistics from 2015 to 2016, 201 Americans died in motor, motor vehicle accidents and eight died in terrorist attacks. And millions, I don't know, 12 million Americans go to Europe in one year. So, you know, life is risky, but you cross the street here, you cross the street there, look both ways. Seth, what do you think about State Department travel advisories? Because there's a lot of (laughs) confusion about these. How seriously do you take them? Well, it depends on what they say. If a advisory says there is incredible political unrest in the capital, then I think there may be incredible political unrest in the capital. But I think people often misinterpret these warnings. Like you'll read that there's a certain state in Mexico which has experienced a lot of violence. And, you know, let's just say it's um, Chihuahua and northern Mexico. And you'll be like, oh, my God, I can't go to Cancun. So I think you take everything with a grain of salt. When something sounds very specific and very serious, you take it seriously. These are put together by professional Mm -hmm. diplomats around the world. So there Mm -hmm. is some reality to them. But countries are so much bigger than we think they are. uh, That trouble in one part of a country does not mean everywhere. And the fact that once in a while something happens somewhere doesn't mean that it's going to happen to you. And things can change as we're on the road, so it is good to be heads up. I would remind people that many countries post travel advisories against traveling in a country called the United States of America. That's right. There's a, the Australians especially seem to be very concerned, and for good reason, about the possibility of, of gun violence in, in the U.S., which is something they don't have as much of there. So it's an interesting perspective. Well, you kind of got to look at the statistics. I know statistics are optional these days, but statistics do speak volumes. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Seth Kugel. His book is Rediscovering Travel, a Guide for the Globally Curious. So, Seth, just to kind of wrap things up, it sounds like the essence of your book is discovery used to be a bigger part of travel than it is these days. And while we have many ways to be more efficient and get online and take advantage of a wealth of information that was beyond even imagining in the old days, don't let discovery take a hit. Right. It's great to have all this information. The whole world is cataloged before your very eyes, but you just can't depend on it for every single thing you do. Keep your eyes open and be ready to break away from your plans and to experience whatever happens to you live and in person when you're in a destination. I would imagine when when you're on assignment with the New York Times, that's when you fill up your notepad is when you get out there and you let serendipity do its thing. Absolutely. You know, I learned this. I'm I'm terrified of not having plans. You know, in a way, this book is about how I tried to make myself into a good traveler, but I haven't quite made it yet. So I always I make a huge list of places to go. Then I start to panic that I'm not going to get to all of them. And the New York Times article is going to be missing something. And then I'll meet somebody and my entire day will change. And that's when the article becomes great. The best, my favorite things to write about are meeting someone who takes me somewhere or recommends a place I had never heard of before, and I throw out the list of the main tourist attractions and end up having a much better time than I ever would have. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been rediscovering travel. That's the name of his book with Seth Kugel. Seth Kugel, thanks a lot and happy travels. Thanks, Rick. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington, by yours truly Tim Tatton and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner. Our website is managed by Andrew Wakeling, and our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We get promotional support from Sheila Gerzoff. Thanks to our colleagues at the BBC in London and the Radio Foundation in New York City for their help this week. 
Read what Rick's been thinking about lately in his online travel blog. Look for Rick's posts on Facebook or at blog.ricksteves.com. And we'll see you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves teaches smart European travel. At ricksteves.com, you'll find an archive of interviews from his radio show, free audio tours of Europe's top sites, and a world of information to help turn your travel dreams into smooth and affordable reality. Begin your next trip at ricksteves.com.